Chapter Eight, Part Three, of Through the Brazilian Wilderness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Through the Brazilian Wilderness by Theodore Roosevelt, Chapter Three, The River of Doubt, Part Three. On the tenth, we again embarked and made a kilometre and a half, spending most of the time in getting past two more rapids. Near the first of these, we saw a small caiman, a jacar tinga. At each set of rapids, the canoes were unloaded and the loads borne past on the shoulders of the camaradas. Three of the canoes were paddled down by a couple of naked paddlers apiece, and the two sets of double canoes were let down by ropes, one of one couple being swamped, but rescued, and brought safely to shore on each occasion. One of the men was upset while working in the swift water, and his face was cut against the stones. Lyra and Kermit did the actual work with the camaradas. Kermit, dressed substantially like the camaradas themselves, worked in the water, and, as the overhanging branches were thronged with crowds of biting and stinging ants, he was marked and blistered over his whole body. Indeed, we all suffered more or less from these ants, while the swarms of biting flies grew constantly more numerous. The termites ate holes in my helmet, and also in the cover of my cot. Everyone else had a hammock. At this camp we had come down the river about 102 kilometers, according to the surveying records, and in height had descended nearly hundred meters, as shown by the aneroid, although the figure in this case is only an approximation, as an aneroid cannot be depended on for absolute accuracy of results. Next morning we found that during the night we had met with a serious misfortune. We had halted at the foot of the rapids. The canoes were moored to trees on the bank, at the tail of the broken water. The two old canoes, although one of them was our biggest cargo carrier, were waterlogged and heavy, and one of them was leaking. In the night the river rose. The leaky canoe, which at best was too low in the water, must have gradually filled from the wash of the waves. It sank, dragging down the other. They began to roll, bursting their moorings, and in the morning they had disappeared. A canoe was launched to look for them, but rolling over the boulders of the rocky bottom, they had at once been driven asunder, and the big fragments that were soon found, floating in eddies, or along the shore, showed that it was useless to look farther. We called these rapids broken canoe rapids. It was not pleasant to have to stop for some days. Thanks to the rapids, we had made slow progress, and with our necessarily limited supply of food, and no knowledge whatever of what was ahead of us, it was important to make good time. But there was no alternative. We had to build either one big canoe or two small ones. It was raining heavily as the men started to explore in different directions for good canoe trees. Three, which ultimately proved not very good for the purpose, were found close to the camp. Splendid-looking trees one of them five feet in diameter, three feet from the ground. The X-men immediately attacked this one under the superintendence of Colonel Rondon. Lyra and Kermit 
started in opposite directions to hunt. Lyra killed a jackal for us, and Kermit killed two monkeys for the men. Toward nightfall it cleared. The moon was nearly full, and the foaming river gleamed like silver. Our men were original volunteers. That is, they had enlisted in the service of the Telegraphic Commission especially to do this wilderness work, and were highly paid, as was fitting, in view of the toil, hardship, and hazard to life and health. Two of them had been with Colonel Rondon during his eight months' exploration in 1909, at which time his men were regulars, from his own battalion of engineers. His four aides during the closing month of this trip were Lieutenants Lyra, Amarante, Alencarliense, and Pyrenees. The naturalist Miranda Ribeiro also accompanied him. This was the year when, marching on foot through an absolutely unknown wilderness, the colonel and his party finally reached the Gai Parana, which on the maps was then, and on most maps is now, placed in an utterly wrong course, and over a degree out of its real position. When they reached the affluence of the Gai Parana, a third of the members of the party were so weak with fever that they could hardly crawl. They had no baggage. Their clothes were in tatters, and some of the men were almost naked. For months they had had no food, except what little game they shot, and especially the wild fruits and nuts. If it had not been for the great abundance of the Brazil nuts, they would all have died. At the first big stream they encountered, they built a canoe, and Alan Carliense took command of it, and descended to map the course of the river. With him went Ribeiro, that Dr. Tanagira, who could no longer walk on account of the alteration of one foot, three men whom the fever had rendered unable longer to walk, and six men, who were as yet well enough to handle the canoe. By the time the remainder of the party came to the next navigable river, eleven more fever-stricken men had nearly reached the end of their tether. Here they ran across a poor devil, who had for four months been lost in the forest, and was dying of slow starvation. He had eaten nothing but Brazil nuts and the grubs of insects. He could no longer walk, but could sit erect and totter feebly for a few feet. Another canoe was built, and in it Pyrenees started downstream, with the eleven fever patients and the starving wanderer. Colonel Rondon kept up the morale of his men by still carrying out the forms of military discipline. The ragged bugler had his buggle. Lieutenant Pyrenees had lost every particle of his clothing except a hat and a pair of drawers. The half-naked lieutenant drew up his eleven fever patients in line, the buggle sounded, every one came to attention, and the haggard colonel read out the orders of the day. Then the Dugot, with its load of sick men, started downstream, and Rondon, Lyra, Amarante, and the twelve remaining men resumed their weary march. When a fortnight later they finally struck a camp of rubber-gatherers, three of the men were literally and entirely naked. Meanwhile, Amilcar had ascended the Jacquiparana a month or two previously with provisions to meet them, for at that time the maps incorrectly treated this river as larger instead of smaller than the Gaiparana, which they were in fact descending, 
and Colonel Rondon had supposed that they were going down the former stream. Amilcar returned after himself suffering much hardship and danger. The different parties finally met at the mouth of Jaiparana, where it enters the Madeira. The lost man, whom they had found, seemed on the road to recovery, and they left him at a ranch on the Madeira, where he could be cared for, yet after they had left him they heard that he had died. On the twelfth the men were still hard at work, hollowing out the hard wood of the big tree, with axe and adze, while watch and ward were kept over them to see that the idlers did not shirk at the expense of the industrious. Kermit and Lyra again hunted, the former shot a carousel, which was welcome, as we were endeavouring in all ways to economise our food supply. We were using the tops of palms also. I spent the day hunting in the woods, for the most part by the river, but saw nothing. In the season of the rains game is away from the river, and fish are scarce and turtles absent. Yet it was pleasant to be in the great silent forest. Here and there grew immense trees, and on some of them mighty buttresses sprang from the base. The lianas and vines were of every size and shape. Some were twisted, and some were not. Some came down straight and slender from branches a hundred feet above. Others curved like long serpents and around the trunks. Others were like knotted cables. In the shadow there was little noise. The wind rarely moved the hot, humid air. There were few flowers or birds. Insects were altogether too abundant and even when travelling slowly it was impossible always to avoid them, not to speak of our constant companions, the bees, mosquitoes, and especially the boroshudas, or blood-sucking flies. Now while bursting through a tangle I disturbed a nest of wasps, whose resentment was active. Now I heedlessly stepped among the outliers of a small party of the carnivorous foraging ants. Now, Grasping a branch as I stumbled, I shook down a shower of fire-ants, and among all these my attention was particularly arrested by the bite of one of the giant ants, which stung like a hornet, so that I felt it for three hours. The camaradas generally went barefoot or only wore sandals, and their ankles and feet were swollen and inflamed from the bites of the boroshudas and ants some being actually incapacitated from work. All of us suffered more or less, our faces and hands swelling slightly from the boroshuda bites, and in spite of our clothes we were bitten all over our bodies, chiefly by ants and the small forest sticks. Because of the rain and the heat, our clothes were usually wet when we took them off at night, and just as wet when we put them on again in the morning. All day on the thirteenth the men worked at the canoe, making good progress. In rolling and shifting the huge, heavy tree trunk, every one had to assist now and then. The work continued until ten in the evening, as the weather was clear. After nightfall, some of the men held candles, and the others plied axe or aids, standing within or beside the great, half-hollowed logs, while the flicker of the lights showed the tropic forest rising in the darkness round about. The night air was hot and still, and heavy with moisture. The men were stripped to the waist. 
olive and copper and ebony, their skins glistened as if oiled, and rippled with the ceaseless play of the thews beneath. On the morning of the fourteenth, the work was resumed in a torrential tropic downpour. The canoe was finished, dragged down to the water, and launched soon after midday, and another hour or so saw us under way. The descent was marked, and the swollen river raced along. Several times we passed great whirlpools, sometimes shifting, sometimes steady. Half a dozen times we ran over rapids, and although they were not high enough to have been obstacles to loaded Canadian canoes, two of them were serious to us. Our heavily laden, clumsy dogwoods were sunk to within three or four inches of the surface of the river, and, although they were buoyed on each side with bundles of burity-palm branch stems, they shipped a great deal of water in the rapids. The two biggest rapids we only just made, and after each we had hastily to push ashore in order to bail. In one set of big ripples, or waves, my canoe was nearly swamped. In a wilderness, where what is ahead is absolutely unknown, alike in terms of time, space, and method, for we had no idea where we would come out, how we would get out, or when we would get out. It is of vital consequence not to lose one's outfit, especially the provisions, and yet it is of only less consequence to go as rapidly as possible, lest all the provisions be exhausted, and the final stages of the expedition be accomplished by men, weakened from semi-starvation, and therefore ripe for disaster. On this occasion, of the two hazards, we felt it necessary to risk running the rapids, for our progress had been so very slow, that unless we made up the time, it was probable that we would be short of food before we got where we would accept to procure any more, except what little the country in the time of the rains and floods might yield. We ran until after five, so that the work of pitching camp was finished in the dark. We had made nearly sixteen kilometers in a direction slightly east of north. This evening the air was fresh and cool. The following morning, the 15th of March, we started in good season. For six kilometers we drifted and paddled down the swift river without incident. At times we saw lofty Brazil nut trees rising above the rest of the forest on the banks, and back from the river these trees grow to enormous proportions, towering like giants. There were great rubber trees also, their leaves always in sets of threes. Then the ground of either hind rose into boulder-strewn, forest-clad hills, and the roar of broken water announced that once more our course was checked by dangerous rapids. Round a bend we came on them, a wide descent of white water, with an island on the middle, at the upper edge. Here a grave misfortune befell us, and graver misfortune was narrowly escaped. Kermit, as usual, was leading in his canoe. It was the smallest and least seaworthy of all. He had in it little except a week's supply of our boxed provisions and a few tools. Fortunately, none of the food for the camaradas. His dog Triguero was with him. Besides himself, the crew consisted of two men, 
Joao, the helmsman or pilot, as he is called in Brazil, and Simplicio, the boatsman. Both were negroes, and exceptionally good men in every way. Kermit halted his canoe on the left bank, above the rapids, and waited for the colonel's canoe. Then the colonel and Lyra walked down the bank to see what was ahead. Kermit took his canoe across to the island to see whether the descent could be better accomplished on the other side. Having made his investigation, he ordered the men to return to the bank he had left, and the dugout was headed upstream accordingly. Before they had gone a dozen yards, the paddlers digging their paddles with all their strength into the swift current. One of the shifting whirlpools of which I have spoken came downstream, whirled them around, and swept them so close to the rapids that no human power could avoid going over them. As they were drifting into them broadside on, Kermit yelled to the steersman to turn her head, so as to take them in the only way that offered any chance whatever of safety. The water came aboard, wave after wave, as they raced down. They reached the bottom with the canoe upright, but so full as barely to float, and the paddlers urged her toward the shore. They had nearly reached the bank when another whirlpool or whirling eddy tore them away and hurried them back to midstream, where the dugout filled and turned over. Jowau, seizing the rope, started to swim ashore. The rope was pulled from his hand, but he reached the bank. Poor Simplicio must have been pulled under at once, and his life beaten out on the boulders beneath the racing torrent. He never rose again, nor did we ever recover his body. Kermit clutched his rifle, his favorite 405 Winchester, with which he had done most of his hunting both in Africa and America, and climbed on the bottom of the upset boat. In a minute he was swept into the second series of rapids, and whirled away from the rolling boat, losing his rifle. The water beat his helmet down over his head and face, and drove him beneath the surface. And when he rose, at last, he was almost drowned, his breath and strength almost spent. He was in swift but quiet water, and swam toward an overhanging branch. His jacket hindered him, but he knew he was too nearly gone to be able to get it off, and sinking with the curious calm one feels when death is but a moment away, he realized that the utmost his failing strength could do was to reach the branch. He reached, and clutched it, and then almost lacked strength to haul himself out on the land. Good Triguero had faithfully swum alongside him through the rapids, and now himself scrambled ashore. It was a very narrow escape. Kermit was a great comfort and help to me on the trip, but the fear of some fatal accident befalling him was always a nightmare to me. He was to be married as soon as the trip was over, and it did not seem to me that I could bear to bring bad tidings to his betrothed and to his mother. Simplicio was unmarried. Later we sent to his mother all the money that would have been his had he lived. The following morning we put on one side of the post erected to mark our camping spot the following inscription, in Portuguese. In these rapids died poor Simplicio. On an expedition such as ours, death is one of the accidents that may at any time occur, and narrow escapes from death are too common to be felt, as they would be felt elsewhere. 
One mourns sincerely, but mourning cannot interfere with labor. We immediately proceeded with the work of the portage. From the head to the tail of this series of rapids, the distance was about six hundred yards. A path was cut along the bank, over which the loads were brought. The empty canoes ran the rapids without mishap, each with two skilled paddlers. One of the canoes almost ran into a swimming tapir at the head of the rapids. It went down the rapids, and then climbed out of the river. Kermit, accompanied by Joao, went three or four miles down the river, looking for the body of Simplicio, and for the sunk canoe. He found neither, but he found a box of provisions and a paddle, and salvaged both by swimming into midstream after them. He also found that a couple of kilometers below there was another stretch of rapids, and following them on the left-hand bank to the foot, he found that they were worse than the ones we had just passed, and impassable for canoes on this left-hand side. We camped at the foot of the rapids we had just passed. There were many small birds here, but it was extremely difficult to see or shoot them in the lofty treetops, and to find them in the tangle beneath it, if they were shot. However, Cherry got four species new to the collection. One was a tiny hummer, one of the species known as wood stars, with dainty but not brilliant plumage. Its kind is never found except in the deep, dark woods, not coming out into the sunshine. Its crop was filled with ants. When shot, it was feeding at a cluster of long red flowers. He also got a very handsome trogon and exquisite little tenager, as brilliant as a cluster of jewels. Its throat was lilac, its breast turquoise, its crown and forehead topaz, while above it was glossy purple-black, the lower part of the back ruby-red. This tenager was a female. I can hardly imagine that the male is more brilliantly colored. The fourth bird was a queer hawk of the genus Ibicter, black, with a white belly, naked red cheeks, and throat and red legs and feet. Its crop was filled with the seeds of fruits and a few insect remains. An extraordinary diet for a hawk. End of chapter 8, part 3